Morning, everybody. Morning. You've had your 24-hour recovery time. Come on now. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Morning. Yeah, there it is. There it is. There it is. Uh, as Pastor Steve said, I am so pumped up for what we're about to begin today. Uh, Genesis speaks so loudly to our time. You don't even know how loudly this ancient text speaks to modern day. I'm going to ask you to open up your minds enough. They're going to explode a little bit at a, at a couple points just to forewarn you. Your mind, I need you to open. I need you to think expansively here. I had a couple of people come up to me after the first service saying, I thought I had kind of known the book of Genesis well, taught through it. But my approach is going to be a little bit different. Um, how many times, if you're part of the Illuminate crew, you've, you often hear me say, my approach to things is going to be a little bit different. I'm teaching this book differently today than I would uh, even 10 years ago because of the day in which we live in. We're going to be speaking to issues that aren't often spoke, spoken to uh, in churches. And the reason why we're going to speak directly to the issues of our day is because for us to ignore them is to make people think the Bible has nothing to say to them when, in fact, the Bible speaks directly to them, and it has uh, from the very beginning. As the title of the book implies, Genesis is all about beginnings. That's what Genesis means, beginnings. When ancient writers sought to title a book, they would use the first word of that book. They would just take it, and that would become the title. So in Hebrew, the first word of the text is Bereshit. And in 250 BC, when the Hebrew text was translated into Greek, they translated the Hebrew Bereshit to the Greek Genesis, or in English, Genesis. A lot of people think of Genesis as the story of the beginning of creation. But that's actually not the primary purpose of the book. The primary purpose of the book is to tell us about the beginnings, the genesis, the genesis of God's relationship with mankind, specifically starting with Adam and Eve. The book is also about God's intention for all things. And this is extremely important because our culture is confused over order and purpose and design and meaning. When you see a thing, an object, immediately your mind begins to discover what is the purpose of this thing? What is its meaning? What is its usefulness? For example, you look at a sledgehammer and you quickly realize it's not a delicate object. You don't use a sledgehammer to crack an egg. You use a sledgehammer to drive a thick nail. Why? because it was designed for that purpose. And so if you want to know something's purpose, you want to ask its designer. And so the beauty of God introducing himself, he says, look around you, do you see all this? I designed it with purpose, order, and meaning. So if you want to know how this stuff is to be used, all of it, all of life, including you, I'll tell you. Because if you try to use something that's designed for a specific purpose outside of that purpose, it's usually messed up. Can you crack an egg with a sledgehammer? Yeah. It's going to be really messy, and that's not its intended purpose. 
But yeah, you can use it that way. But there's actually something that's designed to crack an egg that's more suited so that we want to use that. The book is about creation, it's about purpose, intentionality, and order. And if there was ever a time when we needed these words, it would be now. We lack clarity and meaning and direction. Uh, Not long ago in Psychology Today, they posted an article titled, Welcome to the Age of Confusion. Existential confusion runs rampant in the U.S. And the author says this, it gives a list of challenges, mass shootings, skyrocketing suicides, depression and anxiety, dramatic increase of drug use, culture of victimhood, racial tensions, troubled educational systems, uncertain economic patterns, climate crisis, diametrically opposed political views, a damaging 24-7 polarizing news and social media cycle. Overwhelmingly, people in America believe that humanity is headed in the wrong direction. What is the answer, he asks, The author goes on to say that Christianity, unfortunately, is impossibly outdated, so that's not the answer. But he's honest enough to say that the progressive answer fails because it doesn't deal with the harsh realities of human existence. And what I would say to you is, read the book of Genesis, because not only does it speak to the harsh realities of human existence, it tells you what's broken in the world, how it got broken, and God's intention to fix it. Which is why the book of Genesis actually points forward to Jesus. Let me say that again. That's very important for you to know. And I'm going to show this to you in a way that's going to blow your minds, okay? Before you leave here today, I'm going to show you how the book of Genesis completely and totally points forward to Jesus. Because if God is in the business of of restoring things back to their original intention, because what we see around us is a lot of purposelessness, meaninglessness, God is going to restore it back to this Garden of Eden-like state, but better. But the means by which he's going to put all things right is through the person of Jesus Christ. So Genesis points forward to Jesus in a very clear and profound way. Now, let me give you a quick overview of the book. It can be divided into two basic storylines. The first is found in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Think of it this way. The lens is drawn far back. It's like we have a 100,000-foot view. And what we see in the first 11 chapters is God creating all things. And then we get a number of genealogies. And that's the part where people are like, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And and you're like, oh, this is so boring. I'm just going to fly right over this. If you don't understand the genealogies and their importance, you miss the entire context of the book and how it points forward to Jesus. The genealogies are crucial to your understanding of what this book is about, okay? More about that in a bit. Then in chapters 12 through 50, the lens is drawn in tight, and it focuses on God's relationship with one individual, a man named Abram. Later, his name is changed to Abraham. This guy is so important. This relationship is so important that... Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses become the interpretive key that unlocks your understanding of the entire Bible. If you don't understand these three verses, you won't understand how the Bible so beautifully fits together, both Old and New Testaments. 
from the very first words to the very last words. Genesis chapter 12, those three verses hold the interpretive key to the entire Bible. That's maybe the first time you've ever heard that. That's how crucial understanding Genesis is. Okay? Because here's what happens. Uh, This relationship will form the foundation for all that God wants to set right, beginning with this man. Okay? So, chapter 1. We see God taking darkness, chaos, and disorder, and he brings light, and he brings order. It's like there's this lump of clay. There are the raw materials that God assembles, and then he puts it on the wheel, and he begins forming it. And what he creates is spectacularly beautiful. The complexity, the order it's, it's the diversity, it's, 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 it's mind-numbing. Again, more details next week. But we see God taking darkness, bringing light, disorder, and bringing order. And then there's this crescendo moment in creation. He saves the best for last. And this is really cool because um, to show you how much God is interested and involved in this last piece of creation, God actually gets his hands dirty. Most everything else up until this point in creation, God speaks into existence. But then he's like, okay, now for my crown jewel. Now for the best of all my creation. Genesis chapter chapter 1, verse 26, God says, we're going to create man in our image. There isn't anything else in God's creation that is created in his image. So this is super special. And in order to do this, God does. He literally gets his hands dirty because you you know the name Adam, the word Adam, the Hebrew word Adam, Adamah, it literally means soil. So God just like, you know, he just reaches down into the soil. He's like, okay, I'm going to make something incredible now. And, and the most incredible thing about it is it's going to be a reflection of my image. No other creation has that, only you. This is why all, all humans should be given the, most up, the utmost most respect, honor, and dignity. Because when you look at somebody, you're looking at some, something created in the very image of God, therefore worthy of honor, respect, and dignity, regardless of what society thinks of them or what label they may have. This is why when you see Jesus come on the scene, he, he treats you know, the, 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 the religious man and the prostitute and, and the, 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 out, the, the absolute extreme outcast, the, the untouchable. He treats them all with honor, respect, and dignity because they're all created in the image of God. See, everything goes back to Genesis to cure us for uh, what we see in our own society. Again, more on that in a bit. So he creates Adam and Eve, but then then he also gives them purpose. Chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God says, see the beauty of this place, the beauty of this garden, everything around you, it's all for you. Many times more recently I've been saying, Christians should be the best ecologists on the planet. Why? Because we understand that the earth was created by God for us to steward and therefore to perpetuate its beauty, not to waste its resources. Now, We do not believe in salvation through recycling. We believe in salvation through Jesus, okay? 
But in a very real sense, God is kind of green because he created it all and he's telling creatures in his image to say, take good care of it, perpetuate the beauty of my creation. Don't destroy it. Secondly, he says, make families. Be fruitful. Multiply. Details of that to come. Now, the other amazing thing that God does, because they are created in his image, because he wants to give them dignity, he gives them the ability to choose, to make their own decisions in life. And it has to be this way because if you want to have a real relationship with someone, they have to have the ability to choose to enter into a relationship with you. Otherwise, it's just robotic, right? If, if someone loves you because of who you are, and they just the beautiful thing about marriages, marriages that work, because a husband, a wife is honest to look at the spouse and say, I know you're loaded with junk, <laughs> you know, I know you've got a lot of stuff going on and you, there's a lot of failures and mistakes, but here's the deal. I'm choosing to love you anyways. I'm choosing to love you. That's, what, that's where, you know, when you enter into that relationship, that partnership with each other and you're making sacrifices for one another, all those choices, that equals love. And so God's like, I don't want to make just a bunch of robots. You know, I want them to have a real relationship. So I'm gonna, you have to choose to enter. You have to choose to trust me. That's one of the pillars of any relationship is trust. So the ultimate example of this trust is found in the form of this tree that God puts in the garden. It's, it's the tree, has a specific title, of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, here's the deal. You can eat from anything else. Just don't eat from this tree. Because when you do, you're going to die. And even then, they're kind of scratching their heads. I mean, even going, die, death. What is death, you know? Well, I don't know what death is, really. But, but um, I guess, you know, we have this, our choice. We're going to choose to trust. It's like having like a toddler, right? A little toddler. Like, don't play in the street. Don't play in the street. Don't play in the street. Well, if, if you love that kid, you're going to bring some kind of corrective discipline in that kid's life because they don't understand. If they wander out in the street, a car can crush them. You're like, I love you. I want to keep you around. I know something you don't. Trust me. This is basically what happens in the Garden of Eden. I know something you don't, God says. You're going to have to trust my knowledge. Don't eat from this tree. If you do, it's going to be really bad for you. But it's your choice. So then things get really interesting because there's this slithery creature that comes on the scene. And he's naughty. Rebellious, bad, totally defiant, super egotistical, can't be told what to do. <laughs> and he tells Adam and Eve a different story. Number one, you're not going to die. Number two, and this was really dastardly, he says, um, you're going to be like God. And the great irony of this is that they were already like God. Of all God's creation, only Adam and Eve were created in his image. But you know, you begin to see so many beginnings in the book. You begin to see the seeds of human rebellion. We always want what we don't have. We so easily fall prey to deception, to outside voices, telling us you don't have this, but you need this. And if you had this, you'd be better off. Meanwhile, there's this other voice that says, actually, I know better. Trust me. The reason why I know better is because these are my blueprints. 
Yeah, I'm the author, creator, designer, so you might want to ask me about purpose. Mm, whatever. So all of a sudden, the environment changes. The air gets really thick. There's this feeling of oppression. Things are different. Everything feels different. There's new emotions. There's this sense of anxiety because Adam and Eve distrust God. And there are heavy casualties immediately. We take on heavy casualties. There is heavy loss immediately. First, there's the casualty of man's relationship with God because what Adam and Eve do is they realize, uh-oh, things are different now. The peace, the harmony, the trust, it's not there. We disobeyed. We're suffering the consequences, and so they hide from God. The second casualty is that Adam and Eve, their relationship starts to become very dysfunctional. They start blaming one another for some things. And so God then enters the scene, and he says, well, here's the deal. Where there is choice, there is also consequence. So he speaks to the serpent first, and what we know from the New Testament is that that ancient serpent of old is actually Satan. And he speaks to Satan first, God does, and he says, here are the consequences to you. You're going to have this epic showdown. You're going to be in this epic battle between the offspring of a woman and yourself. You're going to put up a one heck of a fight. You're going to deliver some really devastating blows, but they won't be fatal. They will be a deep wound, but not a fatal wound. Meanwhile, the offspring of a woman is going to crush your head. You're going to be defeated once and for all. And all of the works, all of the things that you deal in, you deal in death, you deal in fear, all of that one day is going to come to an end. You're going to be put to an end. And then he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, here's the consequences to you now. Uh... You're going to have to sweat to eat. You're going to labor. It's not going to be easy. Additionally, <clears throat> the two of you are going to experience dysfunction in your relationship. You're going to despise one another. <clears throat> I need some water. Somebody can grab me some, please. <clears throat> By the way, this message is too important to be distracted <clears throat> by anything going on with me, okay? <clears throat> and so what he says to both of them is, you guys are going to be, your relationship is going to be set wrong from here on out. And when we look at the relationships that we have with each other, we can pretty much go, yeah, you know what? Maybe the Bible is true from the very beginning because... Um, what, what, what we see all around us is, is dysfunction in relationships. And, and that's not, thank you so much. And, and that's a problem, and it's going to remain a problem for you. But these are the consequences. And so the world becomes completely and totally changed in an instant and at this point, uh, 
life goes on, broken. Adam and Eve have kids, Cain and Abel, and we see the beginnings of sibling rivalry. One rises up and tries to kill and effectively does the other. And, and then there's more humans that populate the earth, and as a result, there's more violence and more hatred and more pain. And finally, there's this guy named Lamech that comes on the scene, and he literally says, I am the most evil person who has ever lived. Isn't that awesome? He takes pride in his wickedness. And there's a point where God says, all of my beauty is being corrupted. In Mesopotamia, they learn how to make bricks. And man says, well, you know what? Let's build a structure so high that we reach the gods so that we can become godlike. And God says, no, 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 no. And we're not going to let that happen. We're going to scatter the languages, scatter the people. And, and, and things get worse and worse. And then finally God says, we've got to have a massive reboot. And he starts over with a guy named Noah, and he sends a flood. And it's like, God, thank you for giving humanity a second chance. Thank you. Noah steps off the boat. And he gets drunk. Anybody know the rest of that story? Some really sick stuff goes down with his own family members. And you begin to see just how depraved humanity is. Humans continue to populate the earth. And it doesn't get any better. And it's really, really sad, the first 11 chapters, you know. Things just keep getting worse and worse. And then, when it seems that all hope is lost, chapter 12, where God begins a full-scale rescue plan for humanity by entering into this relationship with a guy named Abram. And here's what we read. It says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So what's interesting is that even to this day, we know that the words of, of the book are true because the name of Abraham is held in high regard by Christians, Jews, and Muslims. It says, I will make a great nation of you. The Israelites trace their lineage. The nation of Israel traced their lineage to who? Abraham. Right? So these promises have come true. But, but then he says this, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And when you see the life of Abraham, that's what happens to the people that he meets. They bless him, they get blessed. He gets cursed, those people get cursed. And he goes on. He says, and in you, and this is the important part, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what he's saying is that Abraham, you're going to have a descendant. And this descendant is going to end up being a blessing to every person on the earth. Now, the question is, who is this descendant? That's what we all want to know. Well, the answer is actually found in the title of the book, Genesis. Now, this is the part where your mind's going to be blown just a little bit. So what I want to do is I want to help you understand that the structure of the book the entire structure of the book actually points forward to Jesus. 
and I'll prove it to you. Genesis chapter 2 says this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So you see that word generations? It's the Hebrew word, or it's the Greek word genesis, or genesis, okay? This is the genesis, the beginnings of the heavens and the earth, okay? This phrase is important. Chapter 5, we see it again, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Guess what that Greek word is for generations? It's genesis, or genesis. Chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Once again, the Greek word for generations is genesis, the genesis of the sons of uh, Noah. Then he gets chapter 10, same phrase. These are the generations or the genesis, genesis of the sons of Noah. Chapter 11, these are the generations of Shem. Again, same word, genesis, the genesis of Shem. You get to uh, verse 27 of chapter 11. These are the generations or genesis of Terah, Terah fathered Abram. The first 11 chapters are a lead up to this man, Abraham. That's why the author wants to tell you, here's how we get from Adam to Abraham. Now that we're on Abraham, here's what you need to know about him. This is the one guy that God entered into a very special relationship with. And he said, through you, all the families on earth are going to be blessed. In other words, you're going to have an offspring that is going to be a blessing to everybody on the planet. How do we know who this person is? Well, there is a genesis being told, stories of beginnings through genealogy leading up to Abraham. Now, here's what's remarkable. When the New Testament opens up, it opens up with the book of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, here's what it says. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word genealogy is the Greek word genesis or genesis. And then he says, Jesus was from the son of David, who is the son of Abraham. If you're a reader in the first century and you're opening up Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, you know the genesis of the Old Testament. And you're familiar with that phrase, this is the book of the genealogy, the genealogy of Adam, the genealogy of Noah, the genealogy of Noah's family, the genealogy of Abraham. Matthew opens his book up and says, I'm going to hit you right between the eyes. I'm going to take you back to Genesis. Listen to this terminology. This is the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus. Without a doubt, the reader is going, um, Jesus is in the genealogical line of Abraham. And with that kind of language, that is the language of Genesis. You're taking me back to Genesis so that I can see Jesus in Genesis. And the author of Matthew is like, that's it. If you don't see Jesus in the book of Genesis, you miss the whole thing. So in Genesis chapter 3, when God speaks to the serpent and he says, there's going to be an offspring of a woman that's going to battle you. You're going to deliver a blow, but he's going to crush you. Fast forward to the cross and what do you see? Jesus has delivered a blow and it looks like it's final. 
but it's not. Because three days later, he comes back from the dead. And that, in effect, is the death blow to Satan. What you see in seed form in Genesis 3, God's saying to the serpent, you see fulfilled at the cross. Genesis is a book about beginnings, but if you miss the focal point of Jesus, even in the book of Genesis, you don't understand the book. Now, what does this mean for you? You're going to hear me say in the weeks to come that because Genesis means beginnings, because you see a series of restarts from God, you see God taking what is dark and disordered and bringing light and order. God is a God of Genesis, and he wants to do a Genesis work in your life. I don't know what that means for you, but we're on the edge of a new year, 2022, and I can promise you this, you will have tremendous joy this year, and you will have tremendous pain. You will experience life, and you will experience death. Already in this new year, this week, we've got one memorial service plan, probably looking at two, and probably by the end of the week, three. Life is full of joys and sorrows. But what God wants to do is take whatever darkness there is in your life, because, you know, this is the greatest, I mean, from the very beginning, that's what God does. Darkness turned it into light. You're going to have some darkness come into your life in 2022. You're like, yeah, I'm only two days in, and it's pretty dark right now. God wants to turn it into light. You know how he does that, though? It's all that that tree represented in the garden, trust. Are you going to trust him, take him at his word, the consequences of not doing so means that your darkness becomes even darker for you. So I'm going to have you bow your heads, close your eyes. When Jesus was about to go to the cross, he left his followers with a reminder. He said, remember my death, because my death is actually everything that Genesis points forward to. It is the ultimate beginning of your eternal life. I take what was so dark, death, and I flip it on its head, and I create life out of it. And that's the hope that you need to have when you're in dark moments, to remember the power of Jesus' resurrection, overcoming what was seemingly impossible to overcome but he did it. And it was all a part of God's plan from the very beginning of time. That's how good God is. You're like, wow, that took a long time. Well, that's where trust comes in. It's been said that the gears of God grind exceedingly slow, but they also grind exceedingly fine. So before we celebrate Jesus' death, and it can only be celebrated because it brings life through communion. Let's take a moment 
and reflect upon whatever genesis God wants to do in your life in 2022.